In the studio tonight, one of the greatest art forgers in American modern history. Ken Perenni is so good at what he does, one of his paintings sold for over $700,000 at auction. Tonight, we look into the life of an art forger. That and more, coming right up on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. My Alien Life Podcast. My guest tonight has made a small fortune forging works by popular 18th and 19th century artists like Martin Johnson Head, Gilbert Stewart, and Charles Bird King. Ken Perenni estimates that hundreds of his fakes remain in circulation, and they have been done so well that the world may never know their whereabouts. Ken Perenni, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Absolutely, and tonight I'd like you to tell your story because... In your book, Caveat Emptor, The Secret Life of, of an American Forger, my listeners probably haven't heard the story, and it's an incredible story, which basically it's repeated itself for hundreds of years because art forgery isn't new, is it? No, it goes back uh, uh, all the way back to ancient Rome. Uh, even Michelangelo uh, dabbled in forgery when he was young. And uh, th- there's they've always been around they've always been operating and um uh all the way up to the present age so uh (laughs) i finally had my turn at it well i throw that word out there art forger um evidently you don't have a problem with that i mean it has some negative connotations but 
But then again, after this long historic tradition, it, it it's one of those things that maybe might not be popular, but it's it's something that we can live with and something that we can talk about. Well, there's uh, um, a, a debate that's uh, been going on in the art world for some time uh, about the validity of uh, forgeries, if you want to call them that. Um, and that is whether, uh, you know, are they valid works of art in their own right? I, I uh, believe that they are. I think it takes a great deal of skill and uh, practice and knowledge and understanding to create a successful thing. Um, and I think they have a, a valid place in the art market and in the art world. Uh, indeed, there's auction houses in London in the past several years. Uh, they've had sales of, of fake. So there is a, there is a, a genuine appreciation uh, for them out there, and um, they're interesting. They uh, the, it, it it shows the mind of uh, an artist uh, that uh, is working to emulate another uh, painter. How well could that be done? Is it possible? Is it possible to fool experts? Is it possible to sell it for a lot of money? Uh, is it uh, is it a, is it a beautiful work of art? in its own right. And that, for me, that's actually the most important uh, point of all. And I think there's no doubt that there's a skill there, um, absolutely. And you're capturing a personality of a person, a history, um, a story, and like you said, the mind of the artist. And so let's go back a few years. When did you actually first realize that you had art potential inside of you? Well, uh, for me, uh, I... uh, was introduced to the art world when I was 17. Uh, I was 17 in 1967. It was a great year to be 17. It was uh, uh, the uh, high point of the uh, hippie movement, which uh, I I guess most of your younger readers, uh, listeners, would probably have to uh, read history books uh, to to find out about today. But it was a great time. There were hippies. To be young. And uh, I lived in um, New Jersey, where I was uh, born and raised, just across the Hudson River from New York City. Um, To make a long story short... uh, in 67, I had an accidental meeting uh, with some uh, an artist and his friends, his uh, art world friends, that had rented uh, a crumbling old estate on the Palisade Cliff overlooking the Hudson River and New York City. And this artist, by the name of Tom Daly, is a very talented man, uh, wanted to use this um, this house, this neo-Gothic style house, which was known as the uh, the castle by locals. Uh, it was um, leased uh, by him to use as a studio. Uh, it was in Fort Lee, New Jersey, right by the George Washington Bridge. I uh, had an accidental meeting with with uh, with Tom or some of his friends, 
and I was invited to uh, to join them at the castle and have some fun. Uh, it was it was a great time. It's a lot of they had a lot of parties there and so on. And I was a local kid and I knew Jersey and showed them around and everything. And and uh, I started tagging along with these folks, going to galleries, museums, art shows in the city. And uh, I I had no plans of becoming an artist. I had no uh, ambitions in that area. And I, I, I had no knowledge of art or what it was. But by going to the museums with them and um, looking at paintings, I uh, began to uh, feel that uh, I had an ability uh, that I could, I understood the way they were painted. I uh, looked very carefully at the uh, uh, the, the, the old masters that were on display at the Metropolitan. And uh, something told me that if I had paints and brushes, I could, I, could paint, I could paint pictures also. I wanted very much to fit in with my new friends at the castle. They were um, artistic. They were uh, doing exciting things over in the city, uh, in, in the art world. And I wanted to be one of them. They were mostly about 10 years older than me, this, this group of people. And uh, so uh, Tom Daly gave me paints and brushes one day, and uh, I started uh, making copies of old masters, and they were remarkably good. Tom was uh, very excited when he saw what I was able to do, and, uh, and by default, because I, w- I wasn't pursuing any other... Uh, vocation in life or I didn't have any plans of going to college. But by default, I uh, started calling myself <laughs> an artist. And I, I guess you could say I learned to paint by osmosis. I <laughs> looked at the paintings at the museum and I watched Tom, my friend, and he was, I guess you could call my mentor also. I watched him paint a lot. I uh, spent a lot of time at the studio at the castle and uh, I, I, I looked very carefully at the way Tom used the brush and the way he made the brush form things and the way he mixed paints and everything. So I learned to paint by osmosis. Uh, I was, uh, I guess, an artist by default. And um, I, uh, I wanted to be a, a painter and I wanted to move into New York City and, and be part of the art world. Uh, however... I, you probably want to know how I got, got into forgery. And, um, did you, I let me ask you this though. Did you have, did you have any favorites back then? I mean, when you're trying to emulate some of these artists, what were, who were your favorites? Uh, well, um, you know, at first I didn't have favorites and, uh, I, I went into the museum as a blank slate. I didn't, I, I was, um, as I said, I was tagging along with my friends that like to go to the Met on Sunday afternoons, particularly. And uh, I was looking at all these grand paintings, beautiful paintings, and I didn't know who painted them. I had no idea where they were painted, when they were painted, what schools they were, whether they were French, Italian, or anything. And I, I recommend... Uh, that type of, of um, uh, approach to a lot of people that contact me and they want to know how, how, how did they, how did 
you get into art? How, how do you get such a great understanding of art? And I, I went into the uh, Metropolitan to just in, and I started enjoying paintings to just look at them. I didn't care what school or who painted them or the names on the plates and the, 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 the placards on them or anything. And I discovered that um, uh, after this type of exposure, after a few trips with my friends, I felt I wanted to go back on my own. I didn't want to be escorted around or following anyone around. I wanted to go back on my own. And there was certain paintings that um, captivated me or they fascinated me in some way. Uh, perhaps I found them particularly beautiful or interesting from a historic point. And uh, by going to the museum uh, on my own, I began to write down names of painters and looking at the dates and realizing, wow, this, this artist, this uh, an artist that became one of my favorites, uh, Francesco Guardi, the Italian Venetian painter of the 18th century, uh, I would take a little uh, card uh, and, and a pen and write down his name. And uh, now I knew who he was and when he painted. And not far from the Metropolitan, there was a, a large Rizzoli bookstore which specializes in art books, as you know. And uh, I would stroll down there, down Fifth Avenue, go to Rizzoli's, and they had all these um, small books, uh, small books on, on all kinds of artists, particularly Italian artists, European painters, old masters, so on. And for about $3, I would buy a small book on the artists I was just um, uh, observing. And uh, now I could read about the artist and look at pictures of his work. And so I started building on that. And every time I went to the Metropolitan, I would find another painter that captivated my attention and uh, perhaps buy a small book about him and read about him. And uh, my favorite painters was um, I liked Italian art. I liked um, French. I liked uh, one of my all-time favorite paintings was a man by the name of Hubert Robert. He um, lived in uh, uh, 18th century Paris, and he was uh, famous for his romantic uh, paintings of ruins that he observed down around Rome and uh, Naples and so on. Uh, he was the painter of ruins. And uh, I liked a lot of these uh, fanciful romantic paintings. And Guardi was Francesco Guardi was very much like that too. Uh, they they specialized in uh, well one area they specialized in was called the Capriccio, which was um, a romantic depiction of ruins in a uh, beautiful uh, uh, and sometimes imaginary uh, or Italianate landscape. And that was the sort of thing that captivated me at first. Uh, then I uh, started spending time in the Dutch galleries in, in, in the Metropolitan. And I liked the Dutch painters and the, and the Flemish painters very much, very much. So um, uh, in my own painting, uh, it was noted by my friend Tom that I had a proclivity uh, in uh, emulating uh, 
the technique of the old masters. Well, that's what I was learning from. I was learning by observing the way the old masters uh, created their their paintings. I uh, was um, very good at looking at paintings closely to understand the way the painting was arranged to depict the image that the artist was expressing in the painting. I was very good at well, I guess what you'd call back engineering a painting. Can I ask you a question uh, about that? Because this yeah. is, so when you're talking about Frances, Francisco Guardi and uh, Hubert Robert, you, you're yeah. looking at, yeah, you're looking at, uh, you're looking at structure, but a lot of detail. And, and the thing about that that really strikes me and makes me wonder how you could do this is, is the context because they painted places you know, and, um, right. in a, in a different country far, far away. So, um, right. how does, how does one who's never been there or did you actually go to these places to, um, study on how to do that? Uh, no, I, what I, um, uh, did is, um, We're probably uh, jump, I got, jumping way ahead there, but I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, no, it's okay. I, I, um, my first real fascination to try to make a fake was actually with Dutch and Flemish paintings. And what I did uh, was I noted that a lot of these uh, paintings, like say Van Goyen, who was a, a famous uh, 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 Dutch painter uh, of river scenes uh, going back in the 1600s. Uh, many of these paintings uh, of his paintings were very similar one after the other, like series of paintings. And uh, people and places and boats were rearranged, but they were often the same, the same figures, the same boats and the same buildings uh, reorganized in new paintings. And uh, to uh, answer your question, kind of a long story, uh, and I, I won't go into it in detail, but um, I go into it in my book, Caveat Emperor. I uh, I was 17. I was 18, and uh, I loved um, I loved sports cars. I was you know I was a normal kid, and uh, I had uh, I had a uh, vintage cars. I loved vintage cars, and uh, I and I had some friends that were my own age. We we bought these broken down vintage cars, and we fixed them up. In those days, you could get them cheap. And uh, I was driving around in an old Bentley, a 1936 sports salon. It was a beautiful old car, Bentley. And um, uh, and I, I had restored the car. And uh, it was expensive. I, I, I needed money to, uh, to, to buy gas. And, and, and parts were extraordinarily expensive for this car. Uh, and uh, I was lamenting one day to my... Uh, my friend Tom at the castle that uh, I needed a voltage regulator for the Bentley. It was like $300, <laughs> which was a fortune. And he, he, he was, um, as a lark, he gave me a book on art forgery. Uh, it was a story of um, Van, uh, Van Meegren. He was a famous art forger back in the 40s. And uh, he, he kind of half-jokingly said, look, why don't you follow this guy's example? He needed money, too. He painted some fake Vermeers, and he sold them, and he became rich. Well, I read the book, and the book went into detail about how a forgery uh, is created that can fool an expert. And I was already making very fine copies of, of uh, various um, small copies of, of old masters, but very fine. 
I, I had amazed my friend Tom. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I could make a Flemish portrait, uh, something in the order of like a small Van Eyck or, or a Memling, something like that. And uh, I understood the principles that were put forth in the book uh, to create a fake, an old master, how it had to be created on a period or antique support, meaning a canvas or a wooden panel. I chose to work on a wooden panel uh, that I scavenged from an, uh, an antique piece of furniture. And um, it was not a problem for me to study the the Flemish portraits in the Metropolitan and design one of my own invention, which I did. And I transferred it onto a small, uh, may have been a, a 10 by 12 inch wooden panel that I had. I painted it. I cracked it. I followed the, um, the general ideas I learned in, in this book about, uh, Van Meegren, but I also improvised, uh, uh, my own uh, techniques to age and forge uh, uh, the painting, and uh, I created um, three of three portraits, and I picked out the best one, and I got up the courage to walk in, take it over to New York City across the bridge, and uh, I walked into a gallery on on uh, East Fifty Seventh Street that specialized in uh, old master paintings and uh, uh, decorative art objects uh, from the Renaissance and, and so on. And uh, the proprietor there, a man by the name of Efron, Efron Gallery, had been there for many, many years, uh, studied the painting very carefully. Uh, and, um, uh, well, it was a very nerve-wracking, as you can imagine, uh, for me to sit there and have him looking at it and examining it. And, and so on. I was almost having a heart attack there. I was 18. <laughs> uh, but he determined that it was antique. And uh, I, uh, an hour later, I was walking out of his gallery with $800 cash, which was a lot of money at that time. Uh, I was uh, 68. And um, I, I got my Bentley fixed up <laughs> and uh, <laughs> gave a lot. I gave some of my girlfriends rides around town and had a lot of fun. Life was good. And uh, so uh, eventually, I, I, uh, forgery from that point on was, um, it was an element for me to make uh, some fast money. And uh, I also found it thrilling and fascinating to be able to uh, design and paint a picture uh, in the style of a, a, a long dead artist from, you know, the past. And, uh, but, but I, uh, didn't look upon it as any kind of a career in, in any sense of the word. Uh, I was limited. I, I was mostly limited. Uh, I wasn't painting Guardi's or anything. I loved Guardi. I loved Hubert Robert, but they were beyond my ability at that time. Uh, so I, uh, but I was, I was developing these Dutch paintings in the, in the style of Van Roysdale and, 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 uh, uh, Flemish paintings, which are earlier. And, um, 
And I had those on the side to raise some quick cash whenever I needed. But I moved into New York City uh, because I was determined to be part of the downtown uh, art scene at that time. It was very exciting. Soho was being developed as a big art community. Artists from all over the world were moving in there into these old lofts and studios and restoring uh, dilapidated townhouses and buildings down there. Boutiques were moving in, restaurants. It was a very exciting time. And I got my first studio on Fifth Avenue and 11th Street in a historic building, the Stanford White Building at number 43, which is just north of um, Washington Square Park. And I actually rented a beautiful old studio in there for $110 a month. Sounds sounds incredible today. Uh, Today you couldn't touch that building. It's a landmark, but in in, uh, it's like the Dakota of downtown. It's a moated building, and it's you know it's very famous. But um, at that time, it was run down. It was really run down, and it had uh, uh, an ancient electrical system in it that uh, limited what you were able to 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 plug in to your rooms and everything. So uh, there was all kinds of people living in there, and I got this beautiful little studio with a terrace for 110. I was living in there, and I wanted to um, design and plan out a collection of abstract impressionist paintings and be part of the contemporary uh, movement downtown, of which I had... I had already been circulating in that world. Uh, uh, my friends from the castle uh, knew everybody in the art world. I had visited uh, Bryce Marden in his gallery and, and other famous artists. And, and we hung out at a bar downtown. Uh, it was uh, called Max's Kansas City. And this was the, uh, uh, the, the, the hangout for uh, all artists that were famous, and those that uh, wanted to become famous. This was the place to be. It was the place where you could meet the right people, the agents, the uh, uh, the patrons, uh, and it attracted um, all kinds of people in the arts, famous photographers, uh, models, uh, beautiful models, and, and international uh, playboys, and what we called the beautiful people hung out there. It was a very exciting uh, place to be and probably something that only happens once in a generation. But Max's was the bar to hang out, and that's where you could meet people, and I did too. And uh, eventually, uh, I moved out of my uh, cozy uh, little studio uh, on the 11th floor of uh, number 43 Fifth. And I moved into a dilapid, wretched, stinking loft with one of Tom Daly's friends from the castle who rented this place just off Union Square. He was, his name was Tony, <laughs> Tony Masaccio. Tony. <laughs> and um, Tony was one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. He was... Uh, uh, he came from an old mafia family in uh, in Brooklyn, 
And he was one of these people that was born with amazing genes. He was, he was fantastically handsome. Uh, he, it, it, you, he was the kind of person you look at and you wonder how, how do people turn out like this? He was, he was charming. He was, uh, uh, he was very, very intelligent. And he moved in uh, the artistic circles uh, in the, in downtown at that time. He knew everybody in the art world. He'd had drinks with Leo Castelli. Uh, he hobnobbed with all the big name artists. They loved him. He was a drinking buddy of uh, Larry Rivers and, and other big name artists. He knew everybody. He knew all the, the critics. He knew the gallery owners. And... Um, and uh, Tony uh, rented this, uh, this this horrible, stinking, uh, depressing loft off Union Square, and I needed space to put my abstract impressionist collection together. And I sold the few fakes. I got money up for uh, for uh, the move uh, and the supplies I would need to put this collection together. And I left my place at Fifth. I moved into this loft uh, on. Uh, uh, Union Square, and I began my serious career as an abstract impressionist painter. And it was a very tough life there. It was cold, it was dingy, uh, but I was putting a very exciting collection together. And I kept myself alive by occasionally selling another Dutch fake to various shops around in the city for whatever I could get. Uh, sometime I would get uh, 800 again, 900, 1,000, 1,200, even something like that. It was all in those price range, anywhere from seven to like 1,200. But that was good money in those days. That could last me three months, you know, uh, uh, because things were a lot cheaper then, of course. Uh, but that's where art forgery was for the moment. And I was getting a lot of uh, interest from important people uh, concerning the the collection I was building in the loft. We were right near Max's. So every night I could go there with Tony and hang out. And uh, it was, and Andy Warhol had his uh, building just um, uh, half a block away from us, uh, right on Union Square. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, and Andy was there, and uh, um, I had the attention of Robert Hughes, the famous uh, art critic uh, for Time magazine, and uh, he was interested in what I was doing. Uh, I had a lot going for me, and uh, I had a very original idea for a collection, which I go into detail in my book. But uh, they seemed to intervene and conspire against me, uh, and uh, it all came to a very sudden end. Uh, we didn't have a bathtub in the loft, and uh, it was very difficult, especially in the winter. It was cold. It was freezing. I would have to run out to friends that I knew in the city and take a bath once in a while, uh, and uh, I had to get used to um, going sometimes for like uh, a week without taking a bath, which, and I had to sleep on a, 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 a thin, uh, mattress on the floor. And it, it was a tough life really in there. That's, so that, tried to that's the part of the artist though, that had to suffer a little bit, maybe. 
Yeah, yeah, and I had very, you know, I had to stretch my money out, and I, I was living on hamburgers and French fries. It was just awful. But anyway, but I, I was young, you know, and you could take it. Uh, but disaster happened when we when we tried to install this bathtub. We were we were we lived above a restaurant. It was a Jewish dairy restaurant. It was a old restaurant. I had been there for, for decades, and uh, we installed the bathtub. Uh, Tony, uh, <laughs> he tried to, he fancied himself some sort of a, uh, a, a, a what do you call it, a construction uh, a worker, because when he was young, he worked on the Brooklyn Expressway with his uh, mafia friends, with his young mafia friends. They got, <laughs> they got jobs. He, he knew Sammy the Bull Gravano, you know. <laughs> He nice. grew up with, with people like that. And he got Sammy wow. his first job. He was telling me. Uh, 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 anyway, so Tony had some tools. He tried to install the bathtub. It didn't work out. It was leaking, leaking, leaking. And uh, and we couldn't see the leak the way the tub was constructed. We couldn't see the leak. We were soaking water into the floor. And one night at like 5 o'clock in the winter, in the freezing cold winter, the ceiling caved in on the uh, restaurant down below and showered the people with plaster and, and water and all. The people thought the, the, the building was collapsing. They panicked. They tried to get out a narrow door. They, the whole place, they wrecked the whole restaurant down below. And uh, I, I, I found that I, I, I was evicted from my studio, from where I was building this collection, uh, in the middle of a freezing cold winter in a, a very bad year in New York City. Uh, it was uh, 70, uh, around 70, 71. I'm not sure right now without my notes. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, 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 I was evicted. I, I was thrown out. I was not formally evicted. I mean, the landlord just told me, you know, you pack your crap up and get out of here within <laughs> a week or else, you know. So, uh so I was in a panic, and it was uh, it was devastating for me, and to, to be young and to be thrown out like that, and had uh, I only had a few hundred dollars to my name. I didn't have the time to make another fake, and I uh, I, I was I was wandering around the city in a, a suicidal depression, wondering what am I going to do? I have this collection half made. I have practically no money. It's the middle of the winter. You can't find an apartment. And I, I was just wandering around in a, in a, like a zombie around the city. I, I, I just, I, I didn't know what to do. And, uh, but I got lucky. Uh, I, I actually got very, very lucky. One day, I remember I, to get warmed up. You know, I was making telephone calls and freezing dirty telephone booths, trying to see if somebody could needed a roommate and, I was just striking out. Nothing was working for me. Uh, and then, uh, to make matters worse, I stepped off of a curb and my foot went into a freezing puddle of freezing cold ice water. I needed that like a hole in the head. <laughs> I'm walking around the city limping on one leg that's frozen right from frostbite. <laughs> wow. What else could go wrong? <laughs> I went into a, I went into this greasy spoon. Midtown coffee shop, and I got a cup of coffee to try to warm warm me up for a moment. <laughs> and when I had to pay the bill, I found a little crumpled up 
a piece of newspaper tucked down in the recess of my wallet. And it was an ad for a, uh, a studio for rent, studios for rent, um, that I had torn out of the newspaper when I um, was searching around and found my little studio on Fifth Avenue. Well, this was uptown, and I had never gone to it because I had I had gotten in on Fifth, and that was it. But the, uh, this was laying still down in my wallet. It was had been there for a long time, and it was at number. 35 East 68th Street, the ad said, uh, live in an Upper East Side townhouse for $40 a week. And that's an incredible address, number 35 East Side. You couldn't touch it today. <laughs> You'd have to be a multimillionaire. You couldn't even, you, <laughs> it's impossible today. But at that time, the city, it was a very different uh, city at that time. It was wide open. You could almost pick your neighborhood and uh, and you would find rentals all you want in those days. That was uh, before New York City really uh, became the great international city. And uh, so I wandered up in the cold and uh, I found the townhouse. It was a beautiful old uh, neoclassical style, um, uh, uh, Rococo style townhouse just off Madison Avenue between Madison and Park. And uh, I had no idea if there would be anything available there, but I, I went in, uh, walked up the steps, opened up this big uh, iron door with the glass behind it, uh, entered this marble uh, uh, foyer, and there was a woman sitting at a desk there. And she uh, and I asked her, is there anything available to be rented here? And she said, and it turned out that the house was broken up into a lot of little studios, and they did indeed rent rooms on a weekly basis for $40 uh, 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 a week. And uh, after um, a, a little back and forth, uh, they didn't have anything available. They sent me to another townhouse they own up the street. came back and uh, within a week, she had a room for me, this lady there, Mrs. Parker. And uh, I moved into, I moved out of the loft on Union Square and, into a warm, nice little top floor room in this beautiful old townhouse. And I felt like my life had been saved. And I, I just, I couldn't believe the luck that I was in. I had warmth, I had a warm bed, and uh, it was just fabulous. Uh, but I was now living on the Upper East Side. Uh, I only had a few hundred dollars to my name, maybe about three or four hundred dollars. And okay, the rent was forty dollars a month, uh, but I had to figure out where do I go from here. And, and my collection isn't even raised; it's all uh, it was that is still down there in that loft. I have to get that out of there. So Mrs. Parker allowed me to take my collection from the loft and put it in the basement of the townhouse. And uh, I quickly went to work in my tiny garret of a room, and I. Um, Started planning on uh, designing uh, 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 some more Dutch and Flemish little paintings on wood panels. But uh, it was within um, a, a couple of weeks there that um, I was offered a very grand room down on the first floor, which was the old drawing room of this beautiful old townhouse. 
And it was a Louis uh, 15th style room with murals on the walls and a big marble fireplace and wooden parquet floors. It was just absolutely magnificent. And a, a big window that looked right out, um, uh, just right over the street there. You could open up the windows and talk to people walking by on the sidewalk. It was just beautifully situated. Uh, and But that was $80 a week. Uh, so I thought, well, see, um, you know, I can't do much up in my room for $40 is very tiny, but if I could, if I could get this place down at 80 a week, which was a lot of money then, I could actually start working again. I could even work on my collection, my contemporary collection. So I, I, I took the leap, uh, and I, uh, I told them, yes, I'll take the room. And I moved in there and I created some, uh, uh, Dutch fake. I went out into the neighborhood on the Upper East Side, which was filled with uh, art dealers up there. I raised some money again, and I was stabilized for, for the moment, and everything was going good. Uh, I was uh, making some money on the side with the fakes. I was working on my contemporary collection again, and I was happy. I was living on the Upper East Side in this magnificent room. Uh, but then uh, what happened was, to make a long story short, that twice in the same winter, I found that I was being evicted again, <laughs> this time from uh, the, 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 the townhouse. The owner of the townhouse, uh, these very wealthy people that lived down on 62nd Street, uh, they decided they wanted to lease out the entire townhouse to a drug rehabilitation clinic on the Upper East Side, on one of the richest, wealthiest streets on the Upper East Side, on 68th Street, they were going to put, they were going to lease the, the townhouse out to a drug rehabilitation clinic, right? Okay, it was a brilliant move. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. Again, I, I was given like two weeks to get out of the house. Uh, I was uh, once again in a suicidal panic running around the city, uh, still in the winter, finding no place to go. I couldn't believe I was living in this nightmare. So uh, I was down to days before the deadline and had no place to go. And I had just given up. I said, I, I don't know what to do. I, I really don't know what to do. Most of the people had left the townhouse. And I'm still sitting there with all this artwork. And I'm getting notices from the, that I better be out by the certain date. So anyway, it turned out, it turned out, uh, a great piece of luck, probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me in my life, apart from meeting Tom Daly and being introduced to the art world, was that my neighbor next door turned out to be uh, the notorious lawyer, Roy Cohn. Wow. And um, he, was, uh, 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 he was a historical figure. I don't know how many people know who he is today, but uh, he was very famous in New York City as one of the greatest... Uh, lawyers uh, of all time and he was a lawyer to the rich and the famous and also to the to the biggest gangsters in the world he had uh, uh carlo gambino was his uh he was he was uh, was one of his clients uh, uh and he also uh was um a lawyer to the uh new house uh uh media empire uh, uh wealthy people from all over the world i mean the creme de la creme had Roy Cohn as their lawyer. He could do anything with the man. He was, he was, uh, he was, he was very mysterious, and he was notorious, and uh, and he was fascinating. He was a a, a very um, uh, 
dark figure uh, with all kinds of stories circulated about him in the press and everything, all kinds of rumors about him and everything. And he was my neighbor. And it was suggested to me that I go over and speak to him and tell him that he's going to have, in another week, he's going to have a drug rehabilitation clinic moving into this townhouse that I'm currently uh, still living in. And is there any uh, any way to help out in this? And I did. Indeed, I went over there and I, uh, I met him and I told him what was happening. And he, he, he was incredulous. He found this hard to believe. And he just told, asked me point blank, are you willing to stay in your house and not move? Uh, uh, he said, you had not been evicted formally. Uh, I could keep you there and any other tenants that are willing to fight it. And, and to make a long story short, uh, that's what I did. I, I refused to leave on the appointed day. Uh, Roy Cohn in, uh, brought a lawsuit against my, uh, the, the owner of, of the townhouse, these fabulously wealthy people, uh, down on 62nd Street. And for the next three years, I was there. I lived there. I worked there. Uh, I became a good friend of Roy. Roy was a, uh, helped me out tremendously in, in, in many ways in my life. But most of all, I had to live on, uh, I had to rely more on faking, uh, pictures. And I kept developing my Dutch paintings. I was branching out to various different Dutch painters. I couldn't keep making the same artists and the same thing and selling them to galleries around on the Upper East Side. Uh, but the big breakthrough in my life came when a friend of Roy's, and I had told Roy what I, uh, what I did. And, and Roy was amused by it. He thought it was, uh, you know, it was interesting that I could do this and, and, uh, and, uh, make money at it. He was just amused by it. Uh, but he, he had a friend, uh, uh, a, a restaurateur, uh, that he introduced me to that was an artist and an art collector himself. He was very wealthy, this, uh, guy. And he was having a show in New York City himself uh, at Emmerich Gallery. And we became friends. And uh, uh, Roy told me, uh, his name was Marty, tell Marty what you do. He's cool. Everything is good. He, he might be able to help you out. And indeed, Marty knew a lot of art uh, 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 collectors and, um, and, and art dealers in New York City. Uh, so Marty introduced me to a dealer who uh, began selling my fakes. Uh, and after a while, I was working with the dealer, Paul, and Paul said that there was someone that wanted to meet me very badly. Uh, and he was a, he, Paul told me he was a, a famous collector of art. He's eccentric. He lives in a mansion just north of the city, and he's one of the biggest collectors of uh, early American paintings and sculpture in the country, and he has a collection that's beyond price. And uh, this uh, dealer, uh, Paul, showed him some of my works, told him that they were fakes painted by this young man. And this collector, his name was Jimmy Rico, R-I-C-A-U, it's a French name, pronounced Rico. Uh, this uh, it came from an old New Orleans family. And uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Rico wanted to meet me. And, uh, and, uh, and I was brought up to his house up in Nyack, but this is some time past. I'm just abbreviating the story, uh, for time's sake. And, uh, uh, I was eventually, uh, 
next to me, and I uh, was in his mansion, which is unbelievable works of art all over the place, uh, paintings, sculpture, furniture, the finest collections of empire furniture you can imagine, museum-quality pieces, and his paintings. Some of them are in the Met- Metropolitan today. But his, his pride and joy was his uh, collection, the greatest collection in the world of American 19th, 19th century American sculpture. Uh, and and his works were uh, could rival anything in, in the in the greatest museums. As a matter of fact, a lot of his uh, uh, pieces of sculpture were on loan to the Metropolitan, the Brooklyn Museum, the Newark Museum, because he couldn't store them all in this house. Uh, so Jimmy was a bit of a rascal. He was eccentric. He was a semi recluse, and he loved what I did. He thought I was very talented. But he said he uh, had one criticism, and that was he didn't like the idea that I, I was limited to Dutch painting, and he wanted me to start faking his great love in life, 19th century American paintings. Uh, and at that time, this by this time we were, um, this was like around 19, uh, let me get this straight, um, Around 1972, 73, I think. I could be wrong. It was, it was around the early 70s. Uh, and uh, what, uh, and uh, Jimmy uh, put at my disposal his entire collection that was a lot of it housed in, in this beautiful neoclassical American uh, mansion that was built in maybe the late 18th century. Uh, or early 19th century, up in um, Piermont, New York. It's a beautiful historic town just north of the city, 20 minutes north of New York City. Um, today, it's priceless. When, uh, when you say uh, a 19th century American artist, you're not talking about like Mar- Mary Cassatt or paintings, uh, people that are well-known like that, are you? Uh, well, that, uh, Mary Cassatt would be uh, late. Uh, would be later. That she, it would be much later. We're talking about Martin Johnson, he, James okay. E. Buttersworth, uh, uh, J.F. Pito, uh, 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 people that were uh, mostly painted in the mid nineteenth century. What right. we call the Hudson River School and the Illuminist School. And Jimmy had a fabulous collection, uh, examples that I could handle. I could look at them very carefully. I could look at the signatures. I could photograph them. Um, and how I could, how, let me ask you this really quick, though. Yep. You, you start painting, yep. um, but, but your shopping list is going to be a little bit different than mine. And you're in New York City, and you can't just go buy a canvas at Dick Blick and, and sell that yep. to a gallery. So what, what was right. the process prior to putting, putting a portrait together? Uh, oh, that's a great question. Yeah, because uh, well, <laughs> I always say that uh, a, a high class fake is a, uh, a very complicated construction, uh, and you have to know the process from the beginning. Uh, it's very important that it starts the right way and ends up in the right way. Because uh, it's going to be examined by a seasoned expert who has looked at hundreds and hundreds of period paintings in his career, maybe thousands, and their eyes are trained to look for all the forensic visuals of 
what a period painting is and should be. And if you don't have a, uh, a, a profound understanding of what makes something antique, the painting will fail. I always say you have to have as much uh, connoisseurship and expertise as the expert uh, to create a great face because you have to know what they're looking for, what they want, what they expect to see. And also there's a very um, important psychological component to creating a great fake. And that is uh, that the, the painting, uh, which is of modern origin, that's masquerading as a period uh, piece of art, has got to have built into it various uh, forensic um, visuals that will plant subliminal messages into the mind of the expert, even though he may not consciously be looking for specific things, uh, but it will plant subliminal messages in his mind that what he is looking at is a genuine article. It could be as subtle as just certain chalk marks on the back of the painting that signify, faded chalk marks that signify that the painting was uh, booked into an auction sale maybe two decades ago, and you could still faintly see some some chalk marks of some numbers and letters back there. They m- might be inconsequential to the casual observer, but to the trained eye, it's sending a message. It's telling a history. The back of the painting tells a story to the trained expert, and a great art forger will be acutely aware of that and build in everything on the back of the canvas that the expert expects to see and make sure it's there ahead of time for his benefit because you have to succeed with painting. Uh, Forgery is what I like to characterize as a contest of wit between the forger and the expert. If your forgery is successful, the the expert will will, uh, accept the painting as genuine and the painting will be sold and the reward will be uh, uh, forthcoming in in the form of (laughs) dollars. <laughs> but uh anyway uh you have to to make a uh, like for instance a um to 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 make a a 19th century american painting you have to start with the correct support again the support is the canvas and the stretcher that uh 19th century american paintings are were originally created on. So where am I going to get a stretcher and a painting, a canvas, to make uh, my fake? I ha- well, it was it, it's common sense. You 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 go to antique shops and you find 19th century American paintings of minor value, of which there are thousands of them out there. I could. In one afternoon, walking around the downtown antique shops in New York City, I could find two, three, four examples. And the stretchers will be period, the canvas will be period, but the painting will be worthless by, you know, some student from the 19th century, some amateur painter of the 19th century. 
So, uh, I mean, in, in the most simplest form of creating a face, you would buy a painting like that and remove the painting that's on the surface and repaint the surface canvas uh, with a high-quality take, a painting, and then age it and crack it and put a patina on it. And that's a very simplistic way of explaining how to create a face. Uh, but um, when I was at Jimmy's up there, I had at my disposal many types of paintings by many artists. And I found uh, the types of stretchers certain artists favored, uh, the type of canvas certain artists favored, and they weren't exclusively uh, uh married to, to a particular canvas, but, but generally, generally. And I also discovered something that was very interesting, and that was the use of something called an academy board. Uh, an academy board was something I had seen in antique shops on minor paintings and never really understood what they were. And they were little um, cardboard. Um, uh, uh, they were a very stiff cardboard um, uh, construction uh, that were produced in the 19th century for artists to, to make their, their paintings on. One side was gessoed, and the other side, the back side, had what was called, they were painted black. It was, it, was, it was called slate paint. And they had a label right in the middle, like DeVoe was a famous manufacturer of these, um, these uh, uh, academy boards, which was a cheap uh, like, like a canvas board is sold in an art supply store today. They're cheap, they're on cardboard, and it's just canvas glued onto cardboard. Well, an academy board was a piece of cardboard. It's a very stiff cardboard, like what's used in, uh, book covers, uh, that type of cardboard, but it has gesso on one side. And a lot of important painters from the 19th century used these academy boards. This was a tremendous uh, enlightenment for me uh, to uh, to see see uh, examples that Jimmy had in this collection by Pito, by Buttersworth, uh, by Francis, and other uh, uh, mid 19th century American painters. They very frequently used uh, the Academy board for small paintings. Well, it was it was um, really uh, very simple for me to go around to local antique shops, even around Jimmy's area up there, around Nyack and Piermont. And I went into local antique shops there, and I found examples of academy boards, and I sanded off. <laughs> I mean, it's just common sense. You just sand off the painting that's on there, which was atrocious usually. Maybe I paid $10, $15 for these things. Uh, and if they had a good 19th century American frame on them, it might be $100 I would pay for it. But then I would have the frame and the academy board. And, all, uh, and it was very simple after that. All I had to do was sand off the painting, put a nice little Buttersworth on there or, or, or a little Pito on there, and put a patina over it and crack it, age it a little, and put it back in the frame. And I could go down uh, down to New York City uh from Nyack, I go down uh, and go to like Herschel and Adler or some other Madison Avenue gallery and walk out with a nice check. It was that easy. And so uh, getting back to Jimmy Rico, I, um, this was a tremendous breakthrough for me because 
when Jimmy explained to me that uh, he was very amused by what I did. He, 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 he loved uh, the idea uh, that I faked paintings. He was a, he was a bit of a rascal, uh, the old man, and he was, a, he was a great wit. He was a great intellect. He was a very well-read and, and knew everything about art history. He was a fascinating person to meet. Um, and he had, a, he had lived an extraordinary uh, life. He, he knew all kinds of famous people in New York City. Uh, in his younger days, he, he, he went out with the Guggenheim sisters and that, that type of thing. Uh, but he, um, he wanted to steer my uh, abilities away from Dutch paintings into, as I said, into 19th century American paintings. And he, uh, he, I had a room at his house up there uh, where I could paint, I could study his work. And by having examples at my disposal, that was a big advantage that it gave me to make a great fake because I could see the canvas, I could see the backs, I could see any old labels that were on the backs of these these uh, uh, original paintings that he had, and I could duplicate everything in my own way at my own leisure. Uh, so at this point, after having my um, my dream of uh, in, in the contemporary art world dashed because of these evictions that I was going through uh, and these dislocations, you could say, in my younger life in New York City. Um, after I started making my first sales of 19th century American painting, this started bringing some very serious money, like five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, which in those days was a lot of money, more money I had ever seen in my life at one time. And at that point... Uh, not only did art forgery become a career, but it also became uh, a great intellectual uh, sport for me. I uh, became, I guess in a sense, addicted to taking the risk and lived on the thrill of creating a painting with, with my own hand and mind and using my ingenuity uh, to, in, in such a high degree that I could walk into an important gallery, present a painting, and have it accepted as original. For me, it was uh, an intoxicating thrill. I, couldn't, I could hardly describe it. And eventually, I started selling my paintings in big auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's, I eventually branched out <laughs> internationally to, to, to London. And um, at, I guess when I was hitting on all cylinders at one point, I was selling paintings um, in Sotheby's and Christie's in both New York and London simultaneously. American paintings in New York and, and British paintings in London. Whatever the market wanted, I made sure I was able to supply their needs. And uh, this went on for a long time, and I sold uh, a great deal of, uh, of fakes, uh, and sometimes directly to dealers, sometimes to unscrupulous dealers that just paid cash on the barrel head and wanted paintings and kind of knew what they were. So I, I worked on many levels, and, I, uh, and uh, uh, that was my life for decades, and it gave me a great life. Uh, it was anonymous. Uh, I was uh, not known by anybody, but... 
I enjoyed that. I liked the covert, uh, 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 covertness of my, uh, my vocation and my lifestyle. I could, uh, I, I liked hanging around in London and New York and Miami. Those were my three cities. Uh, that I enjoyed the most. And uh, Miami was a very exciting city, still is today. You know, it was a very exciting city. And New York, well, that was my first love uh, for a city, growing up in the environs of the city. But I grew to love uh, London as my very favorite city and a place where I loved doing business. And uh, I loved um, my time in Britain and uh, the West Country of Britain, Bath and Bristol area. And I sold in auction houses all over Britain, Phillips, Bonhams, uh, Christie's, and Sotheby's. And I rotated paintings and collections of paintings among the different auction houses. And, um, and uh, at, at one point, checks were pouring in from all the auction houses, both from New York and London, and uh, all being routed into various accounts that I had. I had accounts set up with the auction houses for automatic payments into uh, various bank accounts. And uh, I spent a lot of time uh, enjoying enjoying life and, uh, and uh, being a patron of the arts. I collected uh, uh, art. I... Uh, uh, but most of all, most of all, I mean, it was, I had, it was very exciting for me to uh, sell my paintings and uh, have them accepted that way. But I have to say that most of all, I had a deep and great uh, aesthetic appreciation for paintings. I loved art. I grew to love paintings and art uh, and uh, spent a great deal of my time in uh, all the great museums and um, uh understanding art on a very uh, uh, high level and understanding what makes a painting great. What separates a, uh, you know, a not so great painting from a truly inspired work. And I developed my connoisseurship to a very high degree, which I still have today and I'm still developing today. Uh, I have uh, some, I, I'm flattered sometimes with the people that uh, contact me uh, even these days for my opinions about paintings, uh, some of the, I wouldn't mention any names, but some of the most uh, recognized experts in the world want to know <laughs> whether a certain painting on display somewhere is one of, is genuine or one of mine. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, the eye for it too. I mean, it's yes, your your, yes, your opinion I, is genuine. Yes, yes thank you. I, I had been told by uh, by some very uh, uh, experienced people in the art world that uh, have said to me, uh, Ken, you really have the eye. And in the business, that's a great compliment. It means that you've developed your connoisseurship to a very uh, high degree and you know what's good. Uh, I, I always say I could walk through the, the galleries of the Metropolitan and I've done this with friends that want to take a tour with me. Uh, because I, I say uh, 70% of the paintings are, well, they're all, they're, they're fine paintings, but uh, they're not worth more than a passing glance. Uh, but there's the other 30% that are very interesting. And then there's the 10% that are fascinating. And I have friends that want to, uh, me to point out to them what makes a painting really superlative and what is truly inspired about this painting and what made it a great painting. And, and, and I have the, 
uh, uh, the ability to do that. I think one of the the more noticeable differences in technique between, let's say, you and John Myatt, um, John Myatt basically says uh, people get uh, Monet fever and it strikes in their heart. Um, the prospective buyer just can't pass up a good deal. And um, he, he says he did his paintings with uh, house paint and KY gel. He, basically, mm-hmm. that's it. You know, and, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what, that was my question with you was, you know, obviously a lot of work and research goes into this because you have to put together a good framework before you put the paint on top of it. But, you know, yeah. what's, what's, what's up with what he's saying there? I mean, it, it's, it's much more detailed and not so simplistic. I don't understand that. Well, uh, I think what he's really, um, uh, pointing out there is, uh, look, I, 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 uh, every art forger has their own, uh, story, uh, and their own area, uh, of, of, that they specialize in. Um, he, he, and I give him full credit. I mean, I, I, I don't compete with him in any way. And, and, and we're in different worlds artistically, uh, but he painted um, more from paintings from the modern school, uh, and impressionism. The paint, yeah, and and they, uh, I don't know about house paint and painting a Monet. That that <laughs> that just doesn't make sense to me. I know, but it doesn't. I, I could understand, you know, like certain guys like uh, uh, Jackson Pollock used, you know, Sher- Sherwin Williams house paint to drip their paint and, and stuff like that. So you could you could uh, he. He probably discovered that some of the modern artists that he was taking indeed used certain house paints that you could have bought at Pearl's Art Supply that supplied a lot of that stuff to those um, early modernist painters. Um, uh, so I think he's, he's um, pointing out that even even a great, a valuable piece of art could be made with sometimes the most humble or a hardware store uh, type of um, materials. In my case, uh, I, I had, uh, I, I chose, uh, I guess, kind of a difficult path to go in forgery. I, I um, forged period paintings, which is an entirely different uh, um, technical challenge than say painting uh, a Picasso or a Modigliani or something like that. Uh, not that those paintings are not cracking at this time, but they don't necessarily have to be correct. I had to figure out uh, methods and I figured this out uh, not from reading it, a, a, any kind of uh, ideas in books or anything. I had to figure out methods of how to crack paintings and uh, you could you could create cracks in, in paintings easily enough through various artificial methods that will produce artificial cracks. However, they could never pass the scrutiny of, of an expert uh, at an auction house that's coming to examine. They, they would be spotted a mile away. Like well, that know, was that was the other thing that John says he would just throw it in the oven, or his 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 oh. accomplice would throw it in the oven. No, I don't know. You know, ovens have nothing to do with cracks. You know, it, it, it's just a myth that that'll blister a painting. If you want to bubble up right, a painting right, right. and blister it, that's all it will do. 
And, I, and you know, the, the, the book that I mentioned that was originally given to me, the, the work on Van Meegren, yes, he did indeed use an oven, but it was a very complicated method that he used, and, 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 and it was a very flawed method. And sometimes it worked with him, sometimes it didn't. However, um, uh, not, to, not to get too deep into the weeds on this, but it is important to uh, note that cracks that occur in the surface of period paintings uh, uh, um, occur in characteristic patterns that are well recognized by the trained expert. And so as a forger, uh, you could say, well, I could crack a painting this way or that way. But uh, any kind of a shortcut would create cracks that are not going to uh, uh, follow the pattern that is necessary. The, 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 uh, the patterns of cracks that occur in period paintings occur over a long period of time. A very uh, common pattern is what I call the spider web pattern, where it's circles within circles, and they're joined by secondary cracks that uh, radiate out from them and so on. That's one pattern. But uh, how, do you, how do you make a modern painting that's pretending to be antique in, in, in style, how do you make it crack and crack in a characteristic pattern? It's an incredible uh, technical challenge. And 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 uh, I spent a great deal of time in uh, uh, research and experiments and research to finally perfect a uh, a method that could perfectly uh, create induced cracks to come through a modern painting and and form a perfectly natural pattern that an expert would expect to see in a period painting. And that uh, is one of my proudest achievements. And, I, and today, I'm still creating what I consider the finest fakes in the world today. I've perfected this to an art form and can create all the patterns I want, the various patterns that uh, uh, occur in period paintings, I could create them very fine or very bold as they uh, appear in different types of paintings. And I have learned to control the patterns perfectly to, to uh, mimic the cracks. And they, not, they don't really mimic the cracks. Uh, what I really do, and I describe this in my book, I simply discovered a way to accelerate the, uh, the uh, conditions that produce cracks and period paintings uh, that, that take uh, years or decades to occur in period paintings. I, uh, I have developed a method to accelerate the conditions that create those cracks in a very short period of time. It's as simple as that. Interesting. But that's only, that's only one element of it. That's sure. just the cracking. Uh, well, first and, and foremost, you have to create a very fine painting. 
And I always say to, to, to what I like, when I um, want to specialize in a particular painter, I always say if you, the only way you could create a high-class cake is you have to love the work of the artist to begin with. And uh, that's why I chose my artists carefully. And they were artists that did something to me that I truly appreciated and loved their work. And I wanted to emulate them. Uh, uh, I would read about the artists. I would read about their history, their life, the times they lived in, and everything I could about where they painted, how they painted, any clues I could get uh, about their life. I wanted to know the artist. I want to felt like I... Uh, I knew him as a friend. And uh, I could say that today, the artists that uh, the American painters that I loved so much, Martin Johnson Heed and uh, uh, James E. Buttersworth, who's a very difficult painter. To, this would be the last painter that a forger would want to forge because he's so difficult. And I have mastered his technique and telemetry and his vision, his artistic vision, to perfection. I create new paintings in their style. And sometimes I have been uh, criticized. I've been criticized by uh, people in the art world that would say to me, well, aren't you doing an injustice to these, to, to these great painters of the past? And, and, and I, I think that's an absurd uh, uh, charge. Uh, I, I, I always uh, refute that uh, and, uh, with uh, that if these artists, if these artists could be brought back to life today, they would be deeply flattered, deeply flattered that someone like me spent a life, dedicated my life is what I've done to not only appreciate their artistic vision from, a, from an aesthetic viewpoint, to have a deep appreciation of their, uh, of, of, their, of their painting, but was able to train my hand and my eye to duplicate their technique to perfection. I believe they would be so flattered today that someone could carry on their work as I have, that they would look at a lot of my paintings today and say, where would you want me to sign them? And uh, I believe that. I believe that truly. And, uh, you know, the art world today, well, maybe I shouldn't say, you know, because uh, I have to respect all people's uh, appreciation of art, whatever it may be. But what I see going on in the art world today, I'm sorry, but I just have to say it's lost. It's absurd. It's, just a, it, it, it's preposterous. And therefore, I uh, feel that my uh, work uh, as an artist is uh, even more valid today, emulating these great painters and uh, carrying on their tradition with new creations today to show people uh, in, in a world that has gone uh, directionless in art to try to bring back some sanity, some, some value, some, some skill, uh, some, some aesthetic beauty and appreciation. 
and to to stand for that today. And that's what I do. And I think most artists were life lifelong students as well as teachers. Yes. I mean, all the great painters, uh, not all, but most of the great painters, what did they do? Look at Jacques-Louis David, one of the greatest painters uh, in history, uh, 18th century French, one of the greatest painters of all, a man that I loved so much. He was, he was a great teacher, and he tried to steer his pupils in the direction of carrying on his very style, his, his neoclassical style. And, and he, he, uh, he did indeed uh, bring forth a couple of them, that one of them in particular, who died a young age, uh, you could very much mistake in his, his work for uh, uh, David's uh, hand himself. So uh, Titian did it, uh, 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 all these great painters. They wanted to uh, have students that could carry on their work. Well, I did the same thing. And, you know, I had one of the greatest, one of the greatest experts that we have living in, in America today. I won't mention his name, but he is truly uh, acknowledged as the, the greatest living expert in 19th century American painting. And he, he, he called me, complimented me, and he so enjoyed my book. He so enjoyed my book. And he said, even though I can't agree with our forgery, he said, you did a great service. And he, he gave me this compliment. He said, you brought to the attention so many great painters that uh, are, are being forgotten today. And I've gotten hundreds of emails since the publication of my book from, from uh, uh, readers that enjoyed my, my book. They say, you know, I go to museums now, and I, I know who James E. Buttersworth is, and I know who Martin Johnson Heat is, and, and others as well. Uh, and uh, I could uh, now uh, look at their works and appreciate them. Otherwise, if I didn't read your book, I wouldn't even have known uh, who, 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 they, who they were. So uh, that, um, that has been my career for uh, over 30 years. Um, it ended, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, when the FBI uh, paid me a visit back in the uh, 1990s, and I came under a, uh, a withering, a withering uh, investigation that uh, dragged on for five years. Um, it never ended in any kind of charges being brought against me, and it never stopped me from creating fakes. And today, I'm more prolific than ever. My pictures are more deceptive than ever, but they're sold perfectly legally as forgeries. And where they'll be a decade from now, who knows? I think it's worth noting, too, that there's there's another guy out there who an American forger Mark Landis he his story is remarkable but neither one of you have 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 spent a day in jail and um, you're still both producing a lot of artwork and what what do you attribute to that I mean how does that work I don't I'd love to I'd love to get on that track well uh, it it um, after a lifetime of uh, in investing uh, my artistic skills in the development of beautiful paintings, which I enjoy myself, um, why quit now? Uh, just because my, uh, my activities have come to light, it actually has 
has put me into a um, a different uh, artistic sphere, you might say. Uh, it is true that I miss my covert life in the art world. It is true that I miss the intoxicating thrill of seeing my paintings in uh, the auction house catalogs and uh, sitting in at a sale whenever I could. It is true that I, 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 I miss uh, the, the uh, thrill of taking risk, which is, can become addictive. And uh, all these things may be so, but it's also true that I enjoy uh, creating um, beautiful uh, old masters today and, um, and uh, uh, developing my skill to even greater heights than I even thought possible in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s when I was uh, most active in, 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 that, in that phase of my career. So I've simply graduated to another level. Uh, uh, As as I said, it's not covert anymore, but I have a new appreciation from uh, a new class of people that collect my paintings. Uh, I I wouldn't mention where some of my paintings are hung today. Hmm. They're purchased perfectly legally, but uh, it, it, it's, um, it's a joy to have people that appreciate them and understand that they could hang them in some of these exalted uh, uh, venues and uh, entertain uh, their, get, their sophisticated uh, guests uh, from uh, uh, society and, and so on. And um, and people never question that the paintings that are displayed in their houses or institutions are, in fact, uh, uh, fakes created by me. I think one of the fun things in my life that I do during the summer, I hit uh, the yard sales. And um, people have seen me do this, and they always ask me why. But, you know, if I go to one that has a couple of paintings, I always pick it up and I look at the back first. And the reason... Yeah. Because I just, I just love to see, there's some character back there and it tells a story. And, um, and I, and I love that about a painting and I'll, I'll buy it for the back first, you know, and even though I may, um, like the front later, I, the back comes first, but did you, did you design your, your book cover? Because I love that book cover. Um, no, I didn't, and it never occurred to me uh, to use the back of a painting. It was uh, uh, designed by uh, my uh, publisher. Uh, they had a, uh, a book jacket meeting, and um, I was putting forth ideas of using one of my fakes, you know, or a detail right, exactly. from one of Martin Johnson's, you know, which was the, the logical thing. And um, it never occurred to me. It was a brilliant idea. It was it was enigmatic. Sure, use the back of the painting, not the front. And when they showed that to me, I said, "Oh boy!" They gave me you know several to choose from. And as soon as I saw that, I, oh, of course, that's a great idea. And uh, and uh, Claiborne uh, Hancock, my publisher, said, "Yes, everybody here on the staff thought this was the number one choice, but we wanted to see what you felt about it." So, <laughs> but I couldn't take credit for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see that it, it would make me it would make me grab that book, you know, in, a, in an airport or wherever. <laughs> Talk about the book for a minute, and and um, what does that book mean to you and and your career as an art forger? Well, uh, what it really means to me was the uh, beginning and end of, 
of, of one life that I had. It was um, something that was never planned, as I, I said in the beginning. Uh, it was uh, a, uh, a life that uh, uh, it seemed to evolve on its own. One thing led to another. I uh, had a, an extraordinary run where I lived uh, a life that was um, filled with uh, a lot of money and freedom, and it was exciting, and I had uh, uh, lots of uh, 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 great experiences with all kinds of interesting people and uh, uh, friends that were my own age and going out in New York City in the 90s and having going to clubs and having a lot of it was really uh, for me uh it all came to an end as i said in, in the days and i realized i realized at one point that my life as i knew it for 30 years had come to an end uh my life that started out when i was 17 without any direction or any idea what i was going to do what i was going to become uh fate uh, just put me in a, 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 a right place at the right time to trigger off uh, a, uh, or discover, I should say, uh, a, a hidden talent that I, I, if I hadn't have met Tom Daly and his friends in Fort Lee that introduced me to the art world, uh, to this day, I don't think I ever would have explored art or ever realized that I had an ability to paint. So I had a, I had a lot of luck. It um, it developed on its own due to circumstances. I met Jimmy Rico. It uh, from that point on, I went uh, you know went into the stratospheres of the art world, so in my opinion. And uh, and 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 uh, but I knew it came to an end, and uh, I knew my life as I knew it was over. So I figured, well, why not put it down to posterity? Because uh, you know that's what and see where I go from here. So it was a, it was a, an inflection point. And, uh, and then I, I had to recalibrate my life and, and, uh, and reinvent myself as a forger, which I did. And now it's even more rewarding in a different way. A remarkable story. Thanks for sharing. My guest in the studio Thank tonight you. has been Ken Perenni, author of Caveat Emptor, The Secret Life of an American Forger. Um, Ken, where do we buy the book and uh, where can people find you online? Uh, it can be bought on Amazon and uh, online. Uh, my collections uh, uh, could be viewed at my website, KenPerini.com. Ken Perini, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. 